Would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the third chapter of Genesis? Genesis chapter 3. We began looking at this chapter last week, and we will finish it today. I want to begin reading with verse number 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that we were, you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. When the Lord God said, Behold, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of you and marvel at your glory. What joy is ours to gather in your presence, to worship and to honor you. What a privilege we have to call upon your name in prayer. Lord, we ask you to make your gospel go forth in great power and fruitfulness. 
May we proclaim your truth in this world that is drowning in lies and deception. I pray for every person in this gathering. You know every detail of their lives. I pray that you might make your power and presence known to them in an undeniable fashion. Bring correction where our steps are askew. Bring comfort where our hearts are aching. Bring joy where our burdens are weighing us down. Bring boldness where our lips are being silenced by unrighteousness. Lord, bring unity where divisiveness breeds destruction. Lord, we pray today for our sister churches that they might revel in your gospel and glory. Guard their fellowships from the enemy's evil schemes. I pray that you will fill their leaders, their pastors with your truth and your spirit. Give them hearers, ears, and hearts to receive your truth and to walk in it. Father, we pray for those who have been sent out from our churches, those who are taking your gospel to the difficult and dark places. Give them peace and strength as they go. Often they go alone. Help them, Lord, to know that you are with them, that we go in spirit with them, that we continue to pray for them, supply all their material needs and protect their families. Lord, I pray this morning for our nation. It's filled with so much confusion, so much sin, so much mistrust and doubt. The enemy has blinded eyes, Lord, and hearts in a way that's ever before us. It's, in fact, never been more clear as our friends, our neighbors, even our families, Lord, are walking in darkness. We pray that you might do a great work, that you might bring deliverance to their lives, that you would use us as tools in your hands. Make us your ambassadors. Lord, empower us to faithfully point them to Christ. Convict, convert, transform, that you might be glorified and that all of us, Lord, would be filled with your praise and your worship. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen and amen. Last week, we discussed how God's very good creation has been corrupted. We don't know how or why or when that Satan rebelled. We just know that he did. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, gives us a glimpse of something that happened that took place there. It reads this way. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. It fit God's sovereign plan. That's all we know. For his own reasons and for his own glory. Now, last week we saw Satan's diabolical strategy as he 
somehow made his way into the garden where Adam and Eve had been placed in charge of all creation as God's image bearers. But they chose their own exaltation over that of God. They chose to trust their own wisdom rather than that of God. They doubted God's goodness and chose to be their own authority rather than to live under God's authority. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was there all the time and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Before eating of the fruit, they knew only God uh, and good. They knew no evil. They knew no bad. They knew only good. But after they disobeyed God, they knew both good and evil. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Adam and Eve didn't take that advice. They took Satan's bait and decided that they knew better than God. They embraced evil and shunned God. Now, evil is the absence of good. Evil is the absence of good. Adam and Eve wanted knowledge of life, essentially, that canceled God. This is what our culture is doing. This is what we see evidenced all around us. As people continue to press back away from that which is good and pursue that which is evil. And no one will ultimately get away with it. Not one person. This attitude, this posture that is anti-God is sure to be judged by a holy God. Alan Ross, professor, Bible scholar, said this. He said they had their eyes opened But the promise of divine entitlement did not come about. They knew more, but the additional knowledge was evil, not good. Mistrust and alienation replaced the security and intimacy that they had previously enjoyed. A thorough knowledge of the Word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. They immediately knew guilt. They immediately knew shame. Their relationship with one another was changed forever. Their relationship with God was changed forever. Now, it's interesting that they tried to cover their guilt and shame. They knew that things had changed. They knew they were embarrassed, and they tried to cover it. They had the right theory But they had the wrong method, wrong theology. God's very good creation was corrupted by sin and rebellion. So in verse 8, then we see the response to that. God's unavoidable justice is presented here. God's unavoidable justice. Sin is never insignificant. You know, you've heard that probably all your life. It's been implied in many things that, you know, you can tell a lie that's less than a real lie, right? 
A white lie. What is that? <laughs> a white lie. Or we just bend the truth a little. No, I'm sorry. The truth is pretty rigid. And if you bend it, it breaks. Sin is never insignificant, no matter what the size that we apply to it, no matter how we quantify it, it is not insignificant. And it will never be ignored by God. Remember last week I told you sin is not a thing. What is it? It's an attitude. It's a posture that is anti-God. So it doesn't matter what the attitude leads us to do, whether it's tell a white lie, a half-truth, or whether it's to commit brazen murder. You see, it's the attitude that is anti-God that is the sin. The outward things that we do are merely the consequences of the attitude. God's holiness will not and cannot tolerate this kind of posture. Sin is always a big deal, no matter the size of the sin. Sin is the belief that we can exalt ourselves over God. Sin is thinking and believing that it is possible to self-determine. We live in a world today that is overrun with this attitude, isn't it? We're all about self-determining. My wife and I went uh, in the last couple of days to see a movie. We hadn't been in a long time, and uh, we thought we'd take in a movie. And, uh, you know, it's always an education to watch the trailers of what's coming. It reminds me why I don't go to the theaters. But... A common theme is running through the plots of all these movies. And that common theme is, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not going to fly on the judgment day when we stand before a holy God. It just won't fly. And he's given us ample warning that it won't fly. Sin is believing self-determination is preferable to submitting to God. God could have just destroyed everything and started over, as I told you last week, but that's not the character of a covenant God. A covenant and loving God has greater things in store. He knew before He created that His image bearers would rebel. He knew that sin would bring brokenness, despair, and judgment. His covenant character committed to reclaim it, redeem it, to save it, make it new again. But judgment would have to come first. Adam and Eve had it all. They had life, but now they have death. They had pleasure, but now they have pain. They had abundance, but now they will have a meager provision through their toil and labor. They had perfect harmony with God, but now they had alienation. Not only with God, but with each other. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This was a familiar sound to Adam and Eve. It's implied in the text, is it? That this was God's normal pattern to walk among them. To be with them, to be in their midst. Was the sound different this time? 
Was the sound different this time? As God came forth with wrath and judgment, was it different? I don't think so because God doesn't change. But I think their perception changed because they were looking at it through a lens of sin, guilt, and shame. The sound of God's presence had always been welcome. It had always been good. It had always been encouraging. It had always been uplifting. But now it was something fearful, something dreadful. Do you find this ironic? Here we have man and woman who wanted to be like God. And now they fear being in the very presence of God. By Satan's strategy and their own rebellion, they feared communion with the one they wanted to emulate. And they ran and tried to hide. (laughs) I love this part. They ran and tried to hide. You know, in our neighborhood, uh, through the years, we've been there a long time now, but through the years, there have been, at different phases, stages of time, there have been some rowdy boys, shall we say, in our neighborhood. And you know how rowdy boys are, right? They always want to get into things. They always want to test the boundaries. And these rowdy boys, always testing the boundaries, whether it's shooting fireworks and uh, one time a bottle rocket caught one of our neighbor's yards on fire in the middle of the winter because they were shooting these bottle rockets unsupervised, had to bring in the fire trucks and everybody. They like to throw eggs at houses and cars, and they like to ride their bikes roughshod like banshees running down driveways and across backyards and all these kinds of things. You never knew when they were coming by. And they like the age-old, never-seems-old, ring the doorbell and run away right? (laughs) One night we were in the house and the doorbell rang and I got up, went to the doorbell. There was nobody there. So I instantly, you know, I'm not, I'm not too dumb, but I thought, okay, I know what's going on here, right? I'm looking around. There's nobody around. I know what's happening. So I go and sit down and about five minutes, the doorbell rang again. This time Karen comes out and says, who's at the door? I said, it's the boys. This is their little game. I said, just ignore them. They'll get tired and quit. They're looking for a reaction. Well, that didn't suffice her. She went out and opened the door and didn't stop there like I did. She walked on out onto the stoop and then the sidewalk and started looking around. Know what she saw? (laughs) She saw one of the boys across, across the driveway in one of the cypress trees there, hiding behind some branches. Now, It was as obvious as me looking at Nathan right now. She's looking at him going, I see you, but he's got a couple of branches up there. No, nobody can see me. She walks over. Now, my wife's not an imposing, intimidating woman. And she says, did you just ring our doorbell? He said, she said, you didn't ring our doorbell? Who did? He's looking around, his eyes communicating great fear and trepidation. And he points across the street at another kid. The heart and the eyes are desperate to escape the scrutiny of justice. Why are you ringing our bell, she said, and then running away. It wasn't me. 
That's the way I picture this scene in the garden. Adam and Eve, God had made, they had made, he had made them in his own image, okay, with a certain level of maturity and wisdom and all the things that go with that. And suddenly they had reduced themselves to not middle school boys, but even elementary boys playing pranks or thinking they've played a prank and then running away and trying to hide among the trees that God had spoken into existence as if he couldn't see them. Now make no mistake, God is an imposing presence. Where are you, Adam? The laser eyes, the vision has uncovered him amidst the canopy of the trees. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. I was naked and so I hid myself. (laughs) It goes from bad to worse. Who told you that you were naked? At the end of chapter 2, God told us that they were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Something drastic has changed. They didn't realize that they were naked at the beginning, but now they had a knowledge. A knowledge of evil to go with good. There's only one way you get that kind of knowledge. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, pointing. The woman... By the way, that you gave me, you didn't make her right, God. She's defective. She did it. You messed up. But Adam, fumbling and bumbling and stumbling, suddenly arrives at a confession and ownership. But I ate. God turns to the woman. What have you done? It's the serpent. The serpent you made. You messed up. He deceived me. But then she bumbled and fumbled and stumbled into a confession. I ate. You see, the most significant, most important part of both of their conversations at this point is, I ate. That's what God wanted to hear. He already knew that they were guilty. But until they owned and confessed the sin, there was no opportunity for change to come in their lives. There was no opportunity for them to cover, truly cover, breaking of the covenant until they owned the transgression. The second thing that's happening in this section is there's always a cost for sin. Not only is sin never insignificant, there's always a cost for sin, and it's greater than we anticipate. It's greater than we anticipate. The serpent, God pronounces an enduring conflict between good and evil. He doesn't just seed the creation and seed the creature over to Satan's team. He puts a boundary there. He puts a conflict, enmity between them. He said, Satan, you haven't won this. 
There's now going to be a battle. And what you need to know is I will win. I will win. For the first time, God pronounces a curse. Three times in Genesis chapter 1, he announced a blessing, his favor, his best. But now, a curse. After the fall, God pronounces three curses. He curses, he curses the serpent. He curses the ground. And then in the next chapter, he will curse Cain. To the woman, rebellion produces discomfort, pain, and difficulty. She's not cursed. God does not pronounce a curse upon her, but he does place a punishment upon her in her designed role as mother and wife. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. There's no greater excitement when we learn of the expected arrival of a child. But it also comes with some fear and trepidation because we know that it's not just a given. They don't just get delivered by the stork, do they? No one really believes that, do you? They come through pain of childbirth. Mothers experience great fulfillment in their role as mothers, but it's accompanied by intense pain. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Eve had had promised fulfillment and blessing that were hers as a complementary partner and helper with Adam as they governed over all that God had made. Now she has a desire to rule over her husband. Pain in childbirth, anguish in the struggle for dominance in marriage, and for the man. God saves the best for last. He is punished in the role as provider and head of the human race. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the most painful judgment of all. Instead of living in a blessed paradise with abundance of food, they live on an earth that God has now cursed. It produces thorns and thistles and weeds. Meaningful work becomes toil. You will eat of the plants of the fields, not from the trees that God has made. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. And the ultimate punishment of sin is death. Sin cannot and will not be ignored by a holy God. This was the ultimate, if this was the ultimate end, it would be the greatest of all tragedies. But there's more to the story. As Nathan said earlier, there's more to the story. He is a covenant God who is true to his purposes and plans. He's in covenant with this creation. And this covenant depends completely and exclusively upon him, not on man's disobedience and sin. Isn't that good news? That's great news. The covenant does not depend upon our action, but upon his character and person. Even in the dark shadows of creation's massive failure, God is no longer resting as he did on the seventh day of creation. He is at work 
moving to accomplish his perfect plan. And we see the first glimmer of hope right here in these verses. From this moment, from this moment, throughout the rest of God's word, he begins to unfold the story of how he is redeeming and remaking and reclaiming what belongs to him. So we see thirdly, God's grace saves sinners who trust him. We've seen God's perfect creation marred, corrupted by sin. We've seen God's justice come forth, justice that's unavoidable for our sin. And then we see in verses 20 through 24, God's grace saves sinners who trust Him. God's grace saves sinners who trust Him. We see a promise of redemption in verse 15. It's a graphic picture. Now, if you're someone who likes to get out in nature, you may hike through the woods or through a field, or you may be in a wilderness area, a rocky, sandy area, it doesn't matter. If you're in a place where there are snakes, you run the risk of being bitten where? Not on the head if you're walking along. You may pass a rock, and if there's a snake hiding there, that snake may instinctively reach out and grab you by the lower leg, the ankle, the heel, shall we say. This is what snakes do. They camouflage themselves, and they become a danger when you approach them too closely. But the, re- the reaction, I know it's not popular in our culture today. It's probably not politically correct, but the proper response is to crush the snake's head, right? God says the seed of the woman, a reference and a point, he's pointing toward Christ, the promised one, the promised seed who will come. And yes, you will Attack him on the heel. It's not a killing blow, but a necessary blow. And then he will crush you. He will devastate you. It may look bleak now, but sin and brokenness and despair, God's going to have the victory. This is pointed out in verse 15. Then in verse 20, we see the man called his wife Eve. She is the mother of all living. Coming off the heels of verses 14 through 19, which are daunting. Creation is in bondage to sin. It's painful. It's hopeless. But how glorious is it that God placed this verse here? All is not lost. Abundant life will come out of death, says the one who made life. The one who is the author of life. The one who is life. Death does not win. It's not the final answer. Life is. There is a promise for redemption. We see God's grace covering sin and shame in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins. The fig leaves were not appropriate. They were not sufficient. The leaves came from an inanimate object, a tree that had no feeling, no blood, This method was not a remedy for the shame and the guilt and the fallenness. Nothing we can do is able to cover sin. 
Nothing we can do is able to cover our guilt and shame. Nothing we can do can change it. The debt must be paid. Death is required to satisfy God's judgment. And God demonstrates this here by sacrificing an animal. Now, I want you to get the picture. Adam's job was what? To govern the creation that God had made as God's image bearer here. God had entrusted Adam with the assignment, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Name all the creatures. And there in the quiet shadows of that garden, God took one of those creatures that Adam had lovingly named and nurtured and cared for and become acquainted with. And there God took the life of that innocent animal. He shed its blood and he took the skins and he made coverings for Adam and Eve's sin. And there in the garden, Adam and Eve understood more than ever before the cost of sin. Adam looked at that, the lifeless eyes of that animal and he said, I was put here to guard life and to guard the glory of God. And instead, that animal had to die because of me, because of my sin. This is the cost associated with our disobedience. God's wisdom, God's wisdom prevents fallen humans from living eternally trapped in sin. Verses 22 through 24, he tells us, they were driven from the garden, of, uh, the garden temple and his presence. There he placed cherubim at the entrance, at the east of the garden, it says, and a flaming sword that turned every way. There was no way to avoid the sword. No way to avoid the sword. Anyone attempting to enter the sword would fall on them and annihilate them. D.A. Carson said, this final scene further associates Eden with the later tabernacle and temple, which faced east and contained cherubim. The sword points in every direction so that there is no way to enter the garden. By guarding the garden, the cherubim take on the role that previously had been delegated to the man. Cherubim appear to be assigned to guard God's presence, His holiness. Ezekiel tells us that Satan was originally a guardian cherub. And this explains a cherub guarding the garden here. It also connects with the two cherub that rest upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, guarding God's holiness, His presence. It also explains when Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle, one of the most important pieces was obviously the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant would go in there, and there was a veil that was placed there as a barrier, as a separation between the Holy of Holies where God would dwell and the outer court where men could approach. And this is what Exodus says about the making of this veil. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully woven into it. Sin means that the image bearers can never again go into the presence of God. The cherubim are stationed there to guard 
that entrance. 3.24 here portrays this truth and the veil in the tabernacle and temple affirm it. The Holy of Holies, God's presence is set apart. And the cherubim are an impenetrable barrier. But Christ, but Christ has made a way. Has he not? Listen to Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn containing the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The high priest would enter once a year to make atonement for the people. But it was an elaborate process for him to be prepared even to go in this one day that God allowed him to go in. He would have to make a sacrifice for his own sin. He would have to bathe and clean himself and adorn the proper wardrobe. And then he would go in to the Holy of Holies, but not before they tied a rope to his ankle in case there was any unconfessed sin and God should strike him dead by his holiness. They could pull him out. It pointed, this high priest pointed forward to a better high priest who would make perfect and final atonement. Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That which had separated That which had stood and guarded the glory, the presence of God was removed by Christ himself. The cherubim are no longer there, but have been removed. His substitutionary sacrifice opened the way to God again. And I want to show you one final thing as we conclude. This comes at the end of the story. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful picture? What's not there? The cherubim. The cherubim are not there. There's no barrier separating us from the presence of God. We are eagerly welcomed in to the presence of the Father. And we shall be in His midst forever and ever and ever and ever. All because we're in Christ and we have His righteousness. God's people are all clothed in the righteousness 
of Christ and freely enter. Are you in Christ today? Have you trusted him? You see, it's all about trust. It's all about who you trust and who you don't trust. Trusting in yourself, trusting in this world, trusting in the promises that this world, the vain and empty promises of this world, or trusting in God's word. Adam and Eve messed up. They doubted God's word. They didn't trust it. And God's been proving ever since that he's trustworthy. He's faithful. In whom do you trust? The only ones going into the presence of God are those who trust in God, not in the things that God has made. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and bless you today for you are a great and mighty God. What an incredible, what an incredible thought is ours that as much as Adam and Eve sacrificed on the altar of personal desire and preferential desires, pressing into self-determination, being their own authority, and yet, God, when you could have just annihilated all, us all, you have gone to these incredible lengths to reclaim us and draw us unto yourself. I pray for that one today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day that your spirit summons and draws them unto yourself. Remove all of the barriers, all of the things, the obstacles that would keep us, Lord, from trusting you. Would we pray that you be glorified and honored in our midst here today as we anticipate one day being in your presence forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.